0: Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here
1: with my amazing (laughs) co-host, Ellen McGirt. I love that intro. Hi, Alan. Hi, everyone. So happy to be here and really happy to be talking about what those of us who like to go deep on the history of corporate leadership consider to be a pretty important anniversary. I
0: I think it's an important anniversary. It was two years ago this month that something happened that I think was pretty transformational in the world of business. And it was one of the, the motives for creating this podcast. That's right. The Business Roundtable which is a DC-based group that advocates on behalf of business and includes executives from many of the biggest companies in the country, updated its statement on the mission of a corporation. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but it completely reframed what the group saw as the purpose of a corporation today. For the last... Three decades, four decades of the 20th century, I would say there had been kind of an acceptance of Milton Friedman's dictum that the social responsibility of business was to make a profit, period. Obey the laws, stay within the guardrails, but focus on making a profit. And what this statement said was... Hey, we believe businesses create value for their customers by investing in their employees, Mm -hmm. by fostering diversity and inclusion, by dealing fairly and ethically with suppliers, supporting communities, and protecting the environment. So it was a significant upgrade of what companies' goals should be, according to the Business Roundtable. And it was really the beginning of all this talk about. Stakeholder capitalism.
1: And we've been talking about it ever since, particularly you, Alan. (laughs) But just a few months after that statement, COVID hit. And I know that you had some thoughts about what was going to happen to the stakeholder model in the middle of a pandemic.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I thought companies were going to start looking at their bottom lines, which would have been significantly hit by the pandemic and say, hey, we don't have time to think about all these stakeholders. we got to focus on the financial stuff. And that's not what happened. And Ellen, it, it surprised me. I think it surprised you a little. But the nature of the pandemic, which was different than previous economic downturns, really forced people to focus on their employees And then, of course, after the George Floyd murder, also forced them to focus on things like diversity and inclusion that really mattered to their employees. So we saw the the commitment to stakeholder capitalism not go down, but go up during the pandemic, which was surprising to me.
1: It surprised me, too. Um, And our guest today said plenty of people agreed with you, Alan. Josh Bolton is head of the Business Roundtable. Some people may also recognize him as the former chief of staff for President George W. Bush. And here's what he had to say about that time.
2: You know, it was an interesting thing that uh, right at the start of the pandemic, which was only about, I guess, six months after we first issued the statement, I had a lot of business reporters calling me at my office at the business Roundtable, saying, Well, I guess now that we're hitting the economic skids with this crisis, I guess that means a pause in the progression of your statement of corporate purpose, because everybody's going to have to be clinging to their profitability for dear life. And I said at the time, and it's been borne out, on the contrary.
1: So and to your point, Alan, you you know, looking back on some of the amazing conversations we've had here on Leadership Next this has really been true. You know, I'm thinking about Chuck Robbins of Cisco, who you know had a really emotional story to tell about his own stakeholder journey, which has led to really important changes in how they run the company. I'm thinking about PagerDuty CEO Jennifer Tejada, you know, who rang the bell at uh, you know took her company public right before the pandemic hit, and has just talked about empathy and created all kinds of interesting new ways that they are thinking about how they're going to serve their employees and their communities. Who's who's top of mind for you?
0: Yeah. Look, I think pretty much every conversation we've had on this podcast has confirmed the thesis that this is much more a part of being a leader of a large organization today than it was five, 10, 20 years ago. I mean, I think of people like James Fitterling, the CEO of Dow, which is right. a petrochemical company. Right. Yet he's he spends an awful lot of his time trying to figure out how we tackle the plastic waste problem. Or the CEO of Hilton, Chris Nassetti, you know, and, yeah. and the the moving comments he made to us about how important it is that he show empathy for his employees, so his employees will show empathy for his customers. Or John Donahoe of Nike. Right. I mean, you know, there's a man who is committed to the core. And you know, I think this is what a lot of the skeptics miss. but these do not sound like people who are just pushing a PR line. These are people who make this part of the way they think about how to run successful businesses and create profits
1: right. and embrace the complexity of all of that. That said, the business roundtable statement continues to have its share of skeptics. People who say that all of this is just a lot of talk. And a prominent voice from that corner is someone else we've had on the show, Harvard professor and director of the Program on Corporate Governance at Harvard Law, Lucien Bebchuk.
3: Yeah, I believe it's largely cosmetic. And if we keep talking about it and have uh, more interviews and more calls, uh, we should not expect very substantial benefits to stakeholders to follow. And there are two reasons for this. One is that uh, corporate leaders do not have significant incentives to protect stakeholders beyond what would serve shareholder value, they simply don't. Uh, And secondly, uh, we have to look at the evidence and the evidence that colleagues and I have put forward is that in fact, when CEOs and other corporate leaders face choices, they do not give independent way to the interest of stakeholders.
0: I have a lot of respect for Lucien. I I think he's done some serious research here. He asked an interesting question. If you're really changing the way you're running your company, why aren't you changing your governing laws and your board directives and your uh, uh, shareholder rules and all of that? I understand that, but I also think there's something significant going on here. And that's where we wanted to start the conversation with Josh Bolton, the president and CEO of the Business Roundtable. Josh, you probably know better than anyone how much incredible skepticism and even cynicism there has been over the last Two years since the Business Roundtable made this move, uh, your friends on the Wall Street Journal editorial page think it's all a bunch of woke CEOs who are kind of nodding to the uh, nodding to Democratic leadership. You've got uh, Lucy and Bebchuk up at Harvard who said, "Hey, if this was real, why didn't companies change their governance structure?" That tells me it's all just talk, not action. What do you say to all the critics and all the cynics and all the skeptics to convince them that? something real is going on here.
2: First of all, I should say about the uh, Wall Street Journal, whose editorial page and whose news reporting I, in most cases, respect a great deal, that when we issued our statement two years ago, where we put it publicly was on two pages of the Wall Street Journal and then to have paid for those two pages and then get paid back with a critical editorial the next day was a particularly bitter pill. So next time we're going to be looking to Fortune as the place we put out
3: our followers. It, it our does follow prove that pages. you can't
0: buy good coverage with advertising. Yeah, no, you we're, we're, and not And, and we, we wouldn't promise you any different at Fortune.
2: You, you, You wouldn't, but I got more confidence in you on this issue. Um, Alan, we've gotten a lot of criticism from both left and right, by the way, but with a common theme, which is an exaggeration of what the statement of corporate purpose says. It's not a statement that says business leaders commit to combat all bad things in our society and on our planet. It's a statement that is grounded in taking care of the stakeholders of that company, that enterprise, in the long-term interest of the enterprise. The core of the statement is that the modern American corporate leader recognizes that unless you take care of your customers, your employees, your suppliers, and the communities in which you operate unless you're a good custodian of those stakeholders, the enterprise is not going to flourish in the long run, and the long-term shareholder is not going to flourish in the long run. So the way I respond when we get these criticisms, Alan, is I emphasize that this statement, if you really boil it down to its essence, is a support for long-termism in corporate decision-making. To try to take it beyond those boundaries, I think, is both unfair to the statement itself and unfair to the corporate leaders who are trying to execute on it.
1: You know, another person that we've had on the podcast, too, Alan, I don't know what you think about this, but I would describe as not really left or right, but sort of solidly in the middle and optimistic about stakeholder capitalism is Rebecca Henderson. And when we talked to her, she talked about some of the struggles to sort out how to make good, consistently stakeholder-fueled decisions. And it's going to play out for organizations in different ways at different times in different industries, of course. But we did talk about with her the irony of having a large organization essentially be responsible for how this plays out for them. There was always a fox and hen house Joke in there somewhere. We're self-regulating. Can we trust them? So I was, I was wondering if you could talk about the future of standardized ESG metrics, for example. Where, where does that play a role, or are there other kinds of agreements and metrics and regulations, small r, that we could look to that would be helpful to standardize what stakeholderism really looks like?
2: Yeah, Ellen, I think you're getting to the what is really the hardest issue in the next phase of the progression of stakeholder capitalism, which is how do you measure what corporate leaders are doing? On the ESG side, there is a, an increasing appetite among corporate leaders for some standardization there's resistance to going overboard into heavy-handed regulation and SEC reporting requirements that then make you susceptible to shareholder lawsuits if you don't live up to every, every jot and tittle. So, there, there is an evolution there. I should say, Ellen, can I come back to something that you raised earlier, which is- sure. The issue of dealing with the latest chapter in the crisis of racial equity in this country, Mm -hmm. triggered at least recently by the murder of George Floyd. A lot of corporations stepped up, and in particular at my organization, at the Business Roundtable, stepped up and Decided to lean in and say, okay, this is a moment when our stakeholders are expecting us to lean in and do what we can to promote racial equity in the country and they're following through with a lot of important steps. Business Roundtable members have made, over the the course of the last year, about $50 billion worth of commitments to promote racial equity. And that means providing funding to minority depository institutions, for example. That means, in some cases, philanthropy to support HBCUs. In all cases, it means uh, looking into their own hiring and promotion practices and providing a lot more transparency about the diversity, not just in the, on the board and in the C-suite, but throughout their organizations. It's a journey more than it is a destination at this point, but I, th- I think the journey is well launched.
0: Well, the, although we may come to a bit of a destination before the end of the year, if the SEC follows through on its plans to require disclosure on two of the issues you just mentioned, one, carbon emissions, and two, uh, diversity. Am I hearing you right in that if it's done in a smart way, in a reasonable way, it's something the Business Roundtable can get on board with?
2: Um, certainly with respect to the greenhouse gas emissions because investors are interested and companies do wanna have a standardized way to respond to it. And I think it, it's likely to be coming as well on human capital, although that's that's an area that I think needs even more work than, uh, than the greenhouse gas side does.
0: I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S., and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us, and
4: thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here.
0: Joe, we all know that what gets measured gets managed. Folks like your colleagues at Deloitte have spent a century building up metrics
4: to keep track of shareholder return. But how do we measure stakeholder return? This is still all about measuring attributes that do, in fact, drive shareholder value. Because over the long term, if you are driving indicators that represent value creation to your stakeholders, that will translate into premium returns to your shareholders. So this is really about is lengthening our horizon It's a combination of quantitative and qualitative metrics. There's an enormous amount of work to be done, but you're seeing a real sense of urgency around this. I think that's a really
0: important point, that in
4: the long term, over years, decades,
0: the interests of shareholders and the interests of the stakeholders converge. But in the short
4: term, they can often go in different directions. They certainly can. But what you see is leading investors encouraging the companies they invest in to make certain that they are building and leading sustainable enterprises with the objective of maximizing shareholder value over a long time. Joe, thanks for being with us. Alan, it's a real pleasure.
0: I want to ask a question about your organization, the Business Roundtable, which, you know, I spent most of my career in Washington. I've watched the Business Roundtable for a, a long time. And, you know, it's a lobbying organization. You might describe it differently. I always thought of it anyway as a lobbying organization. It's I, not- I say advocacy. Advocacy. Okay. An advocacy organization. It is not hard for me to, in the four decades that I've been doing this, it's not hard for me to think of examples where the business roundtable was advocating something in Washington that maybe was not in the best interest of society, but was clearly good for the bottom line of business. And so my question is, has this statement on stakeholder capitalism caused you to reevaluate how the Business Roundtable operates on advocacy in Washington? Are there things that you might've done five years ago or 10 years ago, not you personally, because you weren't there, that the Business Roundtable might've done five years ago or 10 years ago that you won't do today because it violates these principles?
1: That's a good question. Wow,
2: um, Ellen, do you want to take it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, don't let him off the hook, Ellen.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll let Throw I'll... me
1: the keys, Josh. I'm dying. I'm dying for anybody to throw me the keys to anything.
2: <laughs> okay, uh, well, I'll 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 take it, Alan. Um, I don't know if specifically as a result of the corporate purpose statement, but as a result of the spirit that produced the corporate purpose statement i think the answer is yes that the nature of advocacy on behalf of business in washington has changed to have a wider aperture than you might have expected from narrow and i underscore short-term self-interest and here and there was a good example at the beginning of the pandemic when it was clear the Congress was gearing up to spend a whole lot of money. And I went to my board, which is currently chaired by Doug McMillan of Walmart. And I said, okay, the Congress is gonna be passing out tens of billions of dollars, what do you want us to focus on? And the answer that came back from the board was, focus on protecting small business which is not the membership of the Business Roundtable. I mean, they, okay. our, our okay. smallest member is, has revenues or market cap above $5 billion. But they were worried about the small business companies that might not be able to survive what, at the time, we thought might be a three- or six-month period. I mean, it's not without self-interest. Those small businesses are their customers and their suppliers. And I got nothing from anybody about uh, okay, can you put a few billion dollars in there for me?
1: could that ever extend to child care, for example? This is very much top of mind for lots of us. We're reporting on it. We're desperately concerned about what's happening to working women um, and we've got this three plus trillion dollar soft infrastructure you know bill coming through that has a significant piece of it devoted to childcare. Do you ever anticipate a scenario where Back at BRT HQ, that becomes something that you lobby for. Ad, excuse me, advocate for, because I think it's a pretty important thing for businesses at any si- of any size to make sure that half the population is able to work.
2: Yeah, and lobby's a fine word. It's uh, <laughs> not. It's not a. It's not a dirty <laughs> word. It's a, It's it's a. It's a useful part of our political system if done with professionalism and integrity. Yeah, I do see that. I mean, the uh, every company that I know of has mentioned that as a, as a big challenge through the course of the pandemic. Our CEOs have, have really been concerned about their workforce that is dependent on good child care in order for them to participate in the workforce. So yeah, I do see that. I mean, the Business Roundtable has come out in favor of components of paid family leave. For example, but there are other elements of childcare that I could see the organization supporting at some point in the future.
0: Ellen, I was going to say you have to ask the Bono question because have we, to don't Bono wanna, question. we don't want to we don't want to leave our listeners thinking that Josh is some gray, dull business advocate.
1: <laughs> well, I met you ages ago when you came to talk to Fortune about your your work in government and money and numbers, and it was fascinating. And but then I really met you at a wonderful. Sort of celebratory gathering of board members and supporters of Bono's philanthropy that many people know as one, and there were people from Red as well. And I was wondering if you could talk to your work on the board there and how it's changed, and specifically what you've learned about bipartisan success, given specifically who Bono is and how he works. Because I think it's, it would be an inspiring story for a divided age.
2: Yeah, Ellen. Thanks for that. And you've mentioned one of my heroes in the form of Bono. I served in all eight years of the Bush White House, uh, including three years as the budget director, which is the you know the most miserable and no, you loved Unpopular, miserable, and unpopular job on the planet. And in those eight years, the best lobbyist I saw come through the doors of the West Wing was Rockstar Bono. He wasn't necessarily somebody that President George W. Bush was inclined to pay attention to or, or even make company with, but he's such an effective lobbyist because he knows what he's talking about. He learns the issues. He understands the political challenges all around. But he's in there advocating for the poorest on the planet and doing a great job of it. I think one of the outstanding legacies of the Bush administration is and and will always be the PEPFAR program. PEPFAR. That's the, yep, PEPFAR. That's the AIDS Absolutely. program that President Bush initiated in 2003. And Bono deserves a huge chunk of credit for helping both encourage the President Bush and the White House to be bold with that plan on the one hand, and on the other hand, for making it safe for people on both sides of the aisle to be supportive of it. I mean, uh, there was always risk that Democrats would reject a plan because it was being put forward by a Republican president. And Bono was part of the detoxifier of politics in support of greater good for humanity.
0: Uh, Josh, I have a different memory of you at the end of the uh, George W. Bush administration, and I can't remember the place or the context, but somebody asked you the question about regrets at the very end of the Bush administration, and you said something to the effect of, I wish we had been able to do more to bring the country together. And of course, in the intervening 12 years, that problem has only gotten worse how do you think about that today? I mean, I think a lot of what's going on in the business community is in part a reaction to the failure of the political community, the inability of people on both sides to get together and, and come up with reasonable solutions to problems.
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, they, that was my, a big regret at the end of the, of the eight years of the Bush administration. And it's, it's gotten dramatically worse, especially over the Trump years. I hope that President Biden is successful in what he has identified as one of his objectives, which is to try to detoxify some of our politics, but there's a long way to go. And it's not just the leadership in the country, it's people are polarized, people are divided. But uh, one of the reasons, Alan, I'm thrilled to have the job I do at the Business Roundtable which is that we get to advocate on behalf of centrist bipartisan policies on a lot of occasions. And in many cases, you, you'll be interested to learn the direction we get from our board is do everything you can to promote bipartisanship in this country, because the country desperately needs it. It tends to produce better policy. And I think business's voice in politics today is more critical than ever because business tends to be pretty darn centrist. I mean, you know, the CEOs may be center right, center left, but they're largely for stability in policy. They're largely for promoting opportunity throughout our society. And I I really hope, and at the Business Roundtable, we work every day to make sure that business is playing its part.
1: Yeah,
0: that's a a great purpose vision for what you're doing and the role the business is often playing today. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.